Uh, Psalm 119, 105 tells us that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And we're going to turn um, to that word that God has given to us that he may illumine us this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. We'll read just a few verses this morning, verses 27 through 30 of Mark chapter 8. And let us be reminded that this is God's holy, righteous, perfect, inerrant, sufficient word to us as we read this morning. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this portion of the service where we open up your word, Lord, we we pray that you would bless your word as we've heard it. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, O God, and we ask that your spirit would, would truly be the one who teaches us, who illumines our heart, Father, that we may understand these glorious words before us. And we ask it in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning in our study of Mark's gospel, we come to what is thematically the central passage of this gospel. And it comes roughly at the center physically of the gospel as well, here in chapter 8 of a of a 16-chapter book. And most importantly, we come to the central question of the gospel. We come to the central message of the gospel. We come to the, really, the central question of all of the gospels and one of the central questions of the New Testament. And two, the most important question that faces every man, woman, and child in the world throughout Mark's day and every day since. And we come to a place where we get the definitive answer to the question that we've seen being asked throughout Mark's gospel so far. We see it um, put, put together and given to us so wonderfully. This event that we're looking at here in these few verses also begins a new section, really, of Mark's gospel, Mark's record of the life and the ministry of Christ, the second of three main divisions of the life and the ministry of Jesus as Mark has recorded it for us. And as we begin this morning, really, in this transitional verse and and to begin this second section, let's remember what we've seen already in the first section. In the first section of Mark's gospel, we saw at the beginning of the book, John the Baptist first come on the scene, out of the wilderness, fulfilling his ministry 
as the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, the messenger that Isaiah spoke of, who would, as Isaiah said, prepare the way of the Lord. Mark would later, and we've seen this, record John's arrest and subsequent murder by Herod. Then in the ninth verse of the first chapter, Jesus comes on the scene. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, then driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and there is tempted and overcomes the temptations of Satan. He then began his ministry there in Galilee, a ministry which consists, first and foremost, as Mark explicitly explains, of proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark said that he preached saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That was his message. And after then calling his disciples, Jesus entered into an itinerant ministry, crisscrossing the the Sea of Galilee there and the towns around that sea, working out of uh, his adopted home base in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a ministry which consisted of teaching and preaching that I just mentioned, as well as his repeated demonstrations of his power and his authority. He healed untold numbers of people, those with fevers and with leprosy, those with long-standing paralysis. He cast demons out of people that were possessed by them. He healed withered hands. He healed those afflicted with deafness and blindness. So much so uh, that people were amazed and asked, who is this? That all of these obey him, all of these forces, all of these situations. And so much so that they were flocking to him constantly, bringing people with all manner of sickness and bondage such that he and his disciples really didn't have any chance to rest. Jesus demonstrated his power and his authority over nature and over sickness and over demons and over sin and even over death. He taught. He performed miracles to large crowds and to small crowds. Large crowds feeding 15,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Later, feeding 4,000 people with similarly slim resources because of the compassion that he had for them. And each time, fully satisfying the people gathered there with abundance left over. He's done all of these things in the Jewish areas around the Sea of Galilee. We've seen that he's done uh, many of these things now in the Gentile areas. Not just in the Sea of Galilee, but in Tyre and Sidon and in the area of the Decapolis over on the east side of the Jordan. And the adulations of the crowd, the wonder of the crowd, were matched only by the rising hatred coming from the religious leaders from Jerusalem, who sent uh, scribes and Pharisees up to, to see what was going on with this Jesus. And with them, Jesus had several confrontations regarding issues like tradition and, and his ability and the source of his authority. 
and why it is that he and his disciples didn't hold to those man-made traditions of the elders that the Pharisees uh, said that he should. He taught the multitudes through parables and explained the meaning of those parables to his disciples, those 12 that he had chosen, ordinary men, fishermen, tax collectors, men who were with Jesus day and night and into whom Jesus poured himself day and night as he taught them, men who were learning, but as we've seen, still had much to learn. Despite all that they had seen, all that they had heard from Jesus, they, as we saw last week, need to be taught the lessons of of following Jesus, the lessons of discipleship over and over, as we often do. And now, as we prepare to move into this new section in Mark's gospel, we're going to see that Jesus is going to focus on that teaching part of his ministry. He's going to focus on his disciples more. He's going to spend less time with the crowds and more time explaining things and teaching his disciples, teaching them what they need to know in preparation for their part in God's work of establishing his church in the world as they will be charged later by the Lord himself to be his witnesses even to the ends of the earth. And they're also going to be introduced to a new subject in the teaching of Jesus. An aspect of of his mission that, as it is revealed to them, is going to cause them to recoil at the very thought of it. It will cause one of them to challenge the Lord, his Lord, and to bring upon himself a rebuke. And it will cause one of them to abandon this whole enterprise and turn from a disciple to a traitor. Because Jesus is now going to be putting aside this Galilee area focus ministry. His work is entering a new phase, a phase that will take him north for a short time and then back through Galilee, through Samaria, and ultimately to a road leading into Jerusalem, which will itself lead to a road leading out of Jerusalem where he will fulfill the work which the Father has sent him to do as he offers himself up for the sins of the world. And these verses in Mark chapter 8 that we have read this morning are the turning point. They're the pivot on which Jesus' ministry turns. Last week we left Jesus and his disciples in the northern shore town of Bethsaida the hometown of the disciples Andrew and Philip and Peter. But now Mark tells us, as by the way do Matthew and Luke, who also record these events, he tells us that they, Jesus and his disciples, leave there and head about 25 miles, almost due north, to the Gentile town of Caesarea Philippi, which sat right near the base of a mountain we know as Mount Hermon. And was the whole area there was under the control of Herod's son, Philip. 
And they've come, as we come to verse 27 this morning, to the outskirts of the city. Mark says here, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And they've apparently ended their travels for right now because Luke tells us that it is while Jesus was praying alone and his disciples are with him, so that gives us an idea that they've stopped, stopped traveling, that Jesus then turns to his disciples and asks them a question. And this is what he says. He looks at the disciples. This is at the end of of verse 27 here. And he asks them, who do people say that I am? What's the word out there? What's the gossip about me? What's the scuttlebutt? What What do the polls say about me? Who do people say that I am? Well, we're going to look now at the ensuing conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And we see first the popular opinion. Because here's the answer they give. It's there in verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Now, that's an interesting group of responses, an interesting group of opinions. Why would people have such a varied opinion of who Christ is. Well, each one of those have something that makes them a candidate for what the people, as they've seen Jesus and, and seen what he has done and, and seen and heard his teaching, what they might have thought. Now, there are other answers that could have been inserted here as well. Other things that Jesus has been called as he has been ministering. Remember in Matthew eleven nineteen that Jesus has been called a drunkard and a glutton because he associated with sinners and tax collectors. He's been called Joseph's son. He's been called a carpenter, both of which um, are true to one degree or another. He's Joseph's stepson, and he was a carpenter. But the first one that we see listed here is John the Baptist. The disciples say, that is who people say that you are. They think you're John the Baptist. And that could be for several reasons. One is that both Jesus and and John the Baptist were very popular religious figures at this time and in this area. John had been a well-known character in Israel. This one who wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey like one of the Old Testament prophets who came out of the wilderness like one of the prophets and who was preaching repentance like the prophets. He was sought after by many, including Herod, which ultimately led to his, John the Baptist's, death. So that could be a reason. Another reason that they might be identified, that people might think that Jesus is John the Baptist, is that their messages were the same at the beginning of their ministry. In Matthew 3, 2, we have John the Baptist and his message that said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the very next chapter of Matthew, Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 4, 17, and his message is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it would make sense that the people might say, well, that's the same message John the Baptist preached, and he's not here now, so this is probably him. 
Also, Jesus' ministry, and, and working with that, Jesus' ministry was starting up about the time that John the Baptist uh, was ending. We have recorded in direct connection with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, again in Matthew's Gospel, the fact that John was imprisoned by Herod. So as Jesus comes on the scene, John goes off the scene. But I think for the most part, this view was probably one that was perpetuated by none other than Herod, Herod Antipas. He, remember, was quite sure of who Jesus was, and he was quite sure that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Remember, we looked at that. Back in Mark chapter 6, Herod had talked Herodias, his niece, into divorcing her first husband, Philip, Herod's brother, and marrying him, and thereby provoking the righteous condemnation of John the Baptist, which Herodias found not to her liking. He was later killed when Herodias's daughter, from her first marriage, danced for the guests at Herod's party, and he foolishly promised her anything that she wanted, and well, dear, dear old mommy had just the thing, and she told her daughter to go and to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod was too embarrassed to refuse, and so he sent and had John killed. So now Jesus shows up around the same time, and he says and he does many of the same things. And Matthew 14 records Herod's evaluation of this. It says, at that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. In fact, in Mark 6, where the killing of John the Baptist is recorded, the people around Herod are are saying the same things, the the same answers that the disciples give here about Jesus. But what does Herod say? He says, no. He says, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised. So all of those kind of come together and give that as a certainly feasible reason or certainly a, a feasible option that Jesus is John the Baptist. The second one that, that he gives or that the disciples give is Elijah. Elijah was a prophet from the Old Testament, very well-known prophet, a very well-loved figure from Old Testament history to the Jews. Remember, the people had also asked John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, if he was Elijah. In John 1, it records that, since he, John the Baptist, had a prophetic ministry after 400 years of silence, as... as, uh, Elijah had a prophetic ministry. But when they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said no. But remember also that that Jesus later corrected that statement of John the Baptist and said that in fact, he, John, was the Elijah that was promised in the Old Testament. But the people were expecting Elijah. Why is that? Well, the Old Testament ends with this promise. 
In Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then nothing for 400 years. It's also true, and, and perhaps the biggest reason that Elijah would appear in the polls of who Jesus was, and the reason that Elijah himself was such a, a popular figure and held in such esteem with the people, had, they had such a fascination with him, was, that, was the record that Elijah had been taken bodily to heaven without a record of him dying. 2 Kings 2.11, remember the, the coming of the chariots of fire and the horse of fire, horses of fire and the whirlwind that took Elijah into heaven. And you combine that fact with the prophecy of Malachi 4.5 that Elijah would come back again, naturally that would lead some people to think that maybe this Jesus, this prophetic figure, was Elijah. So Jesus ministry was prophetic, as John's was prophetic, as Elijah's was, of course, prophetic. So now, in Mark's gospel, after those two, Mark jumps right to sort of a, a catch-all, and etc. He says, and others, one of the prophets. But Matthew, in his his telling of this, Matthew gives us the, the fullest, most detailed record of this event. And Matthew includes one other Old Testament personality that some people thought Jesus was, and that was Jeremiah. He was a prophet, and he was a prophet of judgment, set over the nations. In fact, Jeremiah 1.9 says that the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. And so as Jesus comes preaching repentance and judgment, it's likely that some people might think, well, that's just what Jeremiah did. Many also saw Jeremiah as... Uh, sort of a second forerunner, and specifically one that would bring back Old Testament worship, that would bring back the, the tabernacle and the ark and the altar of incense. There was a, a legend that is recorded in one of the apocryphal books in Second Maccabees that Jeremiah had taken those things and hidden them in a cave somewhere, and had hidden them, it says, until God gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. And so for those reasons, it's likely that some would say, as Matthew records the disciples hearing, that Jesus was perhaps Jeremiah. And then, as I mentioned, Mark here at the end says, or one of the prophets. Some other, another prophet that's not specific. You know, in Deuteronomy 18.15 the Lord had told Moses to tell the people that he, God, would raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people in the future and that they were to listen to him. And so they were expecting a, a prophet to come with the words of the Lord. Deuteronomy 18, I think it's verse 18, says that God had said that he's going to put his words in this prophet's mouth. And so the people would listen to him. And that's what seems to be going on here. 
Ever since then, there was a, a proper biblical anticipation that one would come to fulfill that promise, that God would raise up a prophet like Moses and God would put his words in his mouth. And so the disciples give all of these possibilities. Jesus says, who do people think I am? The disciples say, well, here's a list. Here's what people are saying. Now, these are very distinguished personalities. And to be reckoned as one of them come back from the dead would be very flattering. And it demonstrates the esteem with which Jesus was held in the eyes of many of the people. However, when we look at this list and we look at Jesus, we see that this this list of possibilities falls far short. Even this who's who of Old Testament prophetic figures, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, who, remember, is an Old Covenant person coming before Christ. But this list falls far short of an accurate answer. It falls short of an adequate evaluation of who Jesus is. People have lots of opinions about who Jesus is that that fall so far short. We have them today. What's the popular opinion of our day and recent history concerning Christ? Well, that he's a great moral example. Live like Jesus lived. Wear a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? And do that. Some say he was a great teacher. Even some of the liberals say that. Of course, then they gut the New Testament's record of what he said. Some say that he's a mere label for freedom of any kind, a label under which all people can come together and live in peace. Of course, some say that he's just the founder of a religion, of Christianity. Others say that he is certainly one way to the truth, one way among many. Some see him as simply fire insurance to keep you out of hell. Some say he's someone who can change your life. That's, I think, one of the most popular ones today. This we see even in evangelicalism in what's often referred to as the therapeutic gospel. It goes like this. Jesus is the great therapist. Come to Jesus and he will heal your marriage. He will keep your kids off drugs. He will deliver you from alcoholism. He will give you the self-esteem that you need. He will lead us towards peace. Or then there's a social gospel which teaches that Jesus has come to cure all the ills of society and that's his job. He's the answer to poverty and starvation and and lack of medical care and social justice and inequality and so on. Some say he is someone who gets us. And all of these, the ones in Mark and the ones I've listed here as well, miss by a country mile, a light year, a parsec, who Jesus really is. Even the best of them, even the ones mentioned in our text, are merely shadows. They are are types. And to say that Jesus is any or all of them is simply to see him as a second coming of a type. And he's not. He is that to which the types pointed. 
And by so doing, they all cheapen the truth of who Jesus is. And to follow one of these false impressions of who Jesus is, is to follow an idol. Is any one of these that we've listed, especially the second list, is any one of those the Jesus to whom you identify or with whom you identify, to whom you cry out? The one you serve? You know, that's a non-trivial question because none of those accurately describe Christ as he is presented to us in the Scripture and so present to us another Christ who is not the Christ of the Bible. And so we see this popular opinion that was given then and is given now. But let's look at then, secondly, the truth, the glorious truth of who Jesus is. Jesus, having heard what the crowds think and and what the gossip is concerning, concerning him, he immediately discards it. See, because he's not really... Concerned, he's not really interested in a crowdsourced evaluation of who he is and of his ministry. He's not concerned with generalities, but he's concerned with the great question that demonstrates its importance, not in a broad answer, but in an individual one. You see, on the last day, as we stand before God, Jesus is not going to ask, who do people say that I am? Nor will it be, will that fact, that question be relevant to your situation. It won't be relevant what the crowds, what the culture, what your family, what your spouse, what your parents think. But Jesus gets here to the heart of the issue and the great concern of every individual, the most important question we find in the Bible. He asks it to his disciples in verse 29. He says, but who do you say that I am? And in answer to that, we have what we call the great confession of Peter. The apex of the gospel of Mark and the only answer that one can give if one is to have the hope of eternal life. He says at the end of verse 29, you are the Christ. Matthew adds, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Notice that he says, first of all, the Christ, not Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, even though it quickly sort of came to be used that way. It's an identification. It's a title. A title which means the Messiah, which is itself from a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means the anointed one. And it comes over into Greek as the word Christos. It comes from the word krio, which means to anoint. So Christos is the anointed one. Well, who's the Messiah? Well, the Messiah is the long-awaited Savior come from God who would deliver men and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Though that kingdom is ultimately a universal kingdom. We read this morning in Psalm 2 about this anointed one 
who's also referred to by God in that psalm as my king and my son, my king whom I have set, my son whom I have anointed. And God the Father promises that the nations of the world are given to this anointed one as an inheritance. Obviously, we we learn that in much of the Jewish religion, the spiritual aspect of this Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament to come uh, had been distorted and reduced to a, a figure primarily of national deliverance, concerned with national deliverance. But the biblical view of the Messiah in the Old Testament is that he would be the one who would be and we included this in our prayer this morning, who would be the people's chief prophet. Exodus 18.15, Exodus 18.18, Isaiah 55.4, he is the people's chief prophet. He would be their only high priest. Psalm 110 speaks of that. And he would be their eternal king. The fulfillment, the eternal fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. By the way, those in the Old Testament, those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, those are the offices that were um, initiated upon their, um, their work in that office through the act of anointing, through pouring oil over their head, which is the way that was anointing done, was done. Jesus himself identifies himself as the Messiah in his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. The early church recognized Jesus as the Messiah as they quote Psalm 2 and apply it to Jesus in Acts 4, 26 and 27. And so Peter here, speaking really on behalf of the disciples, in answering Jesus' question, in making this declaration, is making a monumental confession. Peter is the first human to explicitly declare that Jesus is the Messiah. God had done it. Even the demons had recognized it. But now Peter says it. He is recognizing here Jesus as not just Moses, not just Elijah, not just Jeremiah, not just as those people to a different degree, but he is placing Jesus in a completely different category, which is accurate. As the Son of God, in line with Psalm 2. In fact, Matthew, again, his fuller record, again, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, 16. And to see him as anything less than that, For us to see him as anything less than that is to infinitely offend the Holy One who bears the title Messiah. And it is to miss the only hope for one's soul because salvation only comes through this one. We must come to Christ in faith and faith that he is who he said he is and proved that he is. But that raises a question here in connection with Peter's confession. We lose it a little bit because we can only take certain passages at a time as we go through this. But remember, the whole theme of the earlier verses in this chapter, in fact, a big part of our sermon from last week, 
had to do with this. The key verse from last week, remember the sad question that Jesus asked his disciples in verse 21. He said, do you still not understand? Do you still not get who I am? Well, then how is it that Peter, along with the others, went from do you still not understand to a recognition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the one promised to come and to deliver his people? And we should say, should point out that their understanding, though Peter makes this declaration, we'll see pretty quickly that their understanding is still not clear. They are, and we pointed this out purposefully last time, that they are still very much like that blind man from last week's message, who at first, even after Jesus had put his hands on him, still had unclear sight. That's the disciples. Like the blind man, they can recognize a man, and they recognize Jesus as more than a man, but... As we'll see, they still need more understanding. They still need more teaching. They still need more of Christ. They still need further sight. And Jesus will give that to them. But how did he, Peter, how do we come to an understanding of who Christ is? We can't understand it on our own. Our fallen intellect, our our lack of eyes to see and ears to hear make that impossible, then and now. So how do we learn? Let me mention here just quickly what Jesus goes on to say and which Mark doesn't record, but Matthew records in his gospel. And that is the knowledge of the truth, the final thing we're going to see this morning. Or the next to final thing. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus responds to Peter after Peter makes this declaration. Jesus, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then responds to that and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, there's the answer. The ability to recognize and to confess that Jesus is who he says he is is the result of a revelation that comes not from men, not from man, but from God. God opening our eyes. God opening our ears. God opening our mind to understand. Oh, you can hear that Jesus is God from a pastor or from a Christian friend, from a family member, but the ability to make That confession, your confession, cannot come from man. It cannot come from yourself. And I cannot bring you to a place where you will confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and as a Savior. It's like that old corny saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I can lead you to a head knowledge of who Jesus is. I can talk about it here in this passage and in countless other passages. I can tell you about your nature as a sinner. I can tell you about the gospel of Christ as a remedy. But I, 
or any other human being cannot make you understand it. I cannot cause you to confess Christ truly from your heart. I could manipulate you into saying it, and many churches do that. But the heart of man is wicked. The soul of man is dead in trespasses. The will of man is in bondage to sin. And the Bible says that there is no one who seeks God. That is, no one on his own, no matter how eloquently or convincingly a pastor a preacher, or how lovingly a neighbor might speak, or how emotional a plea is given, complete with 43 verses of just as I am, can on his or her own, there is no way a person can genuinely believe or confess Jesus as Lord. It can't come from man, it can't come from his methods, it can't come from his machinations. It can only come from God through the Holy Spirit sovereignly working on a person's heart. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, through his work. A few verses earlier in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we read that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them for they are spiritually discerned. And Jesus said in John 3.3 that unless one is what? Born again, born from above, born from water and the Spirit. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's just as true today as it was when Jesus spoke it. But God has revealed it to Peter, sovereignly, spiritually. And the same way that it was revealed to Peter is the way that it has been revealed to each and every one here who has trusted in Christ genuinely. That's the only way. We trust in Christ through faith, a faith that we learned earlier this morning is a gift from God. Now finally, verse 30, we read this very simply, that he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now at this time, this revelation, this great revelation that Peter speaks of, that revelation's time had not quite come. People's understanding of the Messiah would, would actually detract from Christ's purpose. And so to hear that you are the Messiah, if that was to be spread around, that was going to cause people to go in a completely wrong direction and to see Jesus as one who would free them from Roman oppression instead of one who could save them from their sins. In fact, as we'll see next week, even the disciples are not ready for the full revelation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and how he is going to do it. 
And a final word. No more important question has ever been asked than the question that Jesus asks here. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? Is he a good teacher? Is he John the Baptist? Is he a symbol for all of the good that humanity can, should pursue? Or is he the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who has come and laid down his life in order that you may receive eternal life. The Bible and every true Christian says that he is the Christ, sent to bring in God's kingdom and to bring people into that kingdom. He is the Son of the living God, God in the flesh, the revealer of the glory of God. He's the revealer of the glory of God because he is the possessor of the glory of God, because he's God. My prayer is that God, through his word, by his spirit, will reveal to you exactly, if he hasn't already, who Jesus Christ is. Not merely a good man, not merely a good teacher, not merely the answer to all of life's problems, but he is the answer to the problem in your life, and that's your standing before God. He is the hope for you, if you trust him. He is the hope for me. He is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have sent him to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill the promises of your Messiah, your anointed one, who would come, who would speak your word, who would bring in your kingdom who would remove every impediment to our coming to you. We thank you for him. We thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we thank you that we hear it this day. In his name, amen.